0: Wait, where? What? I'm in a box! Oh no. No, no! no. Not the box. This
1: This is the Escape the the Zoo Zoo Podcast.
0: With your host, Daniel Clark. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Escape the Zoo Podcast, where we talk everything wildlife. Wildlife. Today's guest is Carl Safina, whose resume is absolutely stacked. His writing about the living world has won a MacArthur Genius Prize, Pew, and Guggenheim Fellowships. In addition to countless awards and medals, his writing has appeared in the New York Times, Time Magazine, Audubon, National Geographic, Huffington Post, CNN, and a bunch, bunch more. He has a PhD in ecology from Rutgers. Hosted the PBS show Saving the Ocean, and runs the nonprofit Safina Center at Stony Brook University. He is also the author of seven books, including Song for the Blue Ocean, and we spend the majority of the conversation discussing his latest, Beyond Words What Animals Think and Feel, which discusses the similarity between human and non human consciousness, self awareness, empathy emotional intelligence, etc. It is an examination of humanity's place in the world and calls us to reevaluate how we interact with animals. I'll link to all this stuff in the show notes, but let's get right into it. Without further ado, here it is, my chat with the one and only Carl Safina. Well Carl, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. I'm a huge fan of your work and super excited to talk because your latest book Beyond Words What Animals Think and Feel is a topic that I always come back to because I feel that it's really the largest disconnect between the general population and the natural world uh is our understanding of what animals truly do feel and what their level of consciousness and emotional intelligence is and by misunderstanding that I think it allows the general population to develop this lack of empathy that uh, really permeates in how we treat animals in the world. So would you mind talking a little bit about what the book is about and what drove you to choose this topic specifically to dedicate your time to writing a book about?
1: Sure. Well, the subtitle is What Animals Think and Feel, and that's what the book is about. And um, I approached it, by telling the stories of some uh, actual free-living elephants and wolves and killer whales in different parts of the world, mm-hmm. um, actual individuals in their family groups, and bringing in a, a lot of research and science in addition to the action that I was observing there. And um, as far as what why I wanted to do that, it's... Because uh, basically because of what you just said, you know, who we are here on this planet with is incredibly misunderstood and uh, non-appreciated. And we we live in a very, very rich living world. We're also doing a tremendous amount of damage to that world. Mm-hmm. So appreciating or not appreciating has huge consequences um, for them and for us. So uh, I wanted to uh, wanted to talk about that a lot, and um, ever since I was a very small boy, I've always uh, I've always understood that other animals have lives, and um, I've watched a lot of those lives at some very close range. So that's why I, you know, that's why I know that they do.
0: And when you started beginning the research to tackle this project. How did you go about trying to answer that question? What do animals think and feel? And were the results surprising to you? Did, did you learn that they were more capable of emotion than you originally anticipated? Or was it more being able to prove what you already knew through your observations and your previous work?
1: Well, in the big picture, I think it was um, just showing what I've already learned for my whole life from the time I was seven years old and I had a flock of homing pigeons through the time I used to train hawks and, um, uh, and then the research that I did on seabirds. So it's a lot of stuff that I've seen for uh, my entire life. But um, I, uh, I think there, there are three really good ways of understanding what animals think and feel one is scientifically, you can consider evolution. Mm -hmm. The other is that you can look at the, uh, at their brains, you know, you can, you can look at what brains do and compare brains among various animals and, uh, and ourselves, you can investigate the brain waves and the functioning of living animals with a lot of the tools that we have nowadays and people have been doing that and you can simply watch what they do and 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 look at how much sense it makes and understand that uh they share many of our emotions because they they do things that we understand in contexts that make total sense to us so when they're when they're playing with their family members they look like they're having fun because they are. They don't look like they're fearful or confused. They don't look like they're fighting. But when they're fighting, they look like they're fighting. When they're defending, they they look like they are uh, in a defense mode. Um, when they're fearful and uh, being very circumspect or they're running away, they act and they and they look like they're fearful. So, you know, it's not like we... Can't make any sense of what they're doing. We can because most of our brain functions, the basic ones, are identical to theirs.
0: Yeah, and I thought <clears throat> in your in your TED talk, which congrats on by the way, I think it's over two million views right oh, now, thank you. Yeah. something crazy like that. Yeah. Uh, you alluded to something that I thought was really important because I had always been told the opposite, which was in. It goes into what you were just saying, which is people have spoken about how you shouldn't anthropo I can never say that word properly anthropomorphize
1: anthropomorphize everybody (laughs) everybody who knows nothing about animals knows that one word yeah it's like you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't anthropomorphize
0: animals and try and instill human emotions and identities into them because they're not human why should you do that and when, I, when you were in the TED Talk, you go through some photos and you're explaining how you can clearly understand like these animals are playing, these animals are fighting, these animals are stressed out and running away from something. And it, it is very clear. I mean, it's the same thing.
1: Well, it's, um, it's a different thing, actually. I, I don't project human emotions into animals. I, I see what they do and I make sense of it using everything that we know. And one of the things we know is that we're all biologically related and our brains evolved from exactly the same place. We have a vertebrate brain, all vertebrates have the same kind of brain. We have the same kind of brain hormones that create moods and motivations. We, we know that we have those things. So then to deny that they have the experiences that we know are created with that hardware and those chemicals is not scientific. But if you see, let's say, Um, a good example is let's say you see elephants mating Mm -hmm. and, um, you see the male and the female chasing around and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're doing what they do before they mate and then they mate. and somebody might say, Oh, isn't that beautiful? They're in love. But elephants do not have any pair bonds. After they mate, they separate. They, um, they don't hang around together at all after that. And the males don't provide any parental care at all. So I would not say that they're in love. I, right. I would say that they they definitely are feeling lustful feelings and sexual motivations. But um, that feeling of being pair bonded, they don't have a, as a sexual thing. They have it as a family thing. They have very deep emotional family bonds. But um you know so if you if you watch what they're doing and you know what their lives are like uh, y- you you are not likely to be projecting your own life into them you're likely to be interpreting what you're seeing
0: right and what i also think is interesting is typically uh, before i started educating myself more in uh, animal behavior you would always assume the larger the animal the larger the brain the more likely there's parallels to The human emotional side of things and the human brain function and then i spent some time working with seabirds in hawaii and started understanding the intense like monogamous mating pairs and how they work so hard together as a couple to raise chicks and then you look at something like that and something you typically equate to having a bird brain quote unquote which is a negative connotation does have the capacity for love even I don't know if it's more so than an elephant, but certainly differently than an elephant.
1: Well, they certainly have a capacity for for, um, sexual pair bonding that is much more than what elephants have, because elephants simply don't have that, and seabirds do. I actually just spent the entire morning reading science papers about the convergent functions, uh, convergent cognitive functions, in other words, intelligence of... Um, mostly birds of the crow family Mm -hmm. and and apes and um, and the bias that we have both um, both implicitly because the apes are close more closely related to us and look more like us and explicitly Because we kind of keep telling each other that they're more intelligent because they're closer to us. Um, But if you simply look at what they're capable of doing, ravens and, um, and apes, you know, ravens, gorillas, chimpanzees, they basically are capable of doing exactly the same kinds of things. So they, even with a much, much smaller brain, but the thing about bird brains is this, the neurons are much smaller, so they pack a lot more into a smaller space. Mm-hmm. And as far as what they need to do, that um, involves what we call intelligence, which is basically things like social skills and problem solving. They they simply perform just about identically. And, uh, and basically their intelligence is... Uh, is on exactly the same plane if you if you simply look at you know their performance in different tasks and uh, uh, in, in different experiments that measure similar kinds of things. That's so, so interesting. We, yeah, it's very interesting.
0: I know the crow and the raven are really touted as the most intelligent or being ability to problem solve of the birds, but is that something that? broadly applicable across all bird species, that they typically have similar capacities to at least uh, using tools or solving problems uh, comparatively to apes and humans? Or is that strictly something no, I, that's I unique to no, the crow I don't, and the raven?
1: I, I don't think it's true across birds. I, I think that the uh, the crow family and the parrot order Mm-hmm. um are um are quite quite different in those regards as far as behavioral flexibilities and social skills I think they're quite different. I think with parrots, I think one thing with parrots that is different is parrots seem to me to be able to go into rages in a in a very mammalian kind of way. Uh is something that we would really recognize as being enraged, whereas uh, I've never seen that in any other kinds of birds that I've had or worked with. Is so? It- I th- I do think that you know I do think that these these different groups of birds have some different kinds of skills. Definitely,
0: this may be an unanswerable question, but is there any? hypotheses as to why certain birds developed so much more intellectually capable than others? Like why a crow or a parrot well, order yeah, would need there, more? There,
1: there, are, there are hypotheses, yeah, but um, proof is a little bit more elusive. But I think, you know, the first thing is you look at their social structure and see what they do. So with birds that live in flocks where A lot of the flocks are kind of um, stable where many of the individuals may have an opportunity to to get to know who they are, you know, who they are as individuals, see the same individuals over and over again, Mm -hmm. um, develop friendships, alliances, um, uh, sort of reciprocal food finding Where, you know, one day I follow you and the next day you follow me because I found something. One day I didn't find anything. You know where the food was last night. I'll follow you. Those kinds of things. Um, If birds are all spread out on their territories, then um, they're not as likely to have those kinds of opportunities or needs. So if you're in a fairly stable social situation... It's advantageous to develop social skills. And in the science literature, that is that is referred to rather diabolically as Machiavellian intelligence, which sort of puts a bad cast on it. Right. Um, and, and sometimes it is used for, um, you know, sort of negative reasons like um, cheating somebody and keeping track of who who has done you a favor, or who has cheated you or who you can rely on or who who is your rival in some ways. Uh, who beat you in a fight, who beat your friend in a fight, things like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, you know, uh, primates live in groups like that. And so do some of the crows. And so do some of, you know, and ravens, some, so do many of the parrots, but uh, again, not, not all of them. There's a lot, a lot of variability.
0: That makes a ton of sense. And it kind of alludes to what you mentioned when you were looking at which animals to study in Beyond words, you look at elephants, killer whales, wolves, and you compared that to animals that you didn't focus on, like herring and some basic species of fish, et cetera. And yeah. you uh distinctly name them the it animals versus the who animals. Can you explain a yeah. little bit about what that is in regards to the social structure?
1: Yeah, well, what what I what I said just to you know, just as a way to sort of explain this is that if you know who somebody is in your group, then you are a who animal. Mm -hmm. If if individuals mean something to one another, those are what I call the who animals. And the ones where the individuals don't mean anything to one another, you know, like one mosquito doesn't mean much to another mosquito. They're not friends. They're not in the same group. They're not traveling together. They have no relationship socially to one another. And the same could be said for certain, certain schooling fish that travel in these schools by the millions like uh like herring or anchovies or something like that mm-hmm. certainly not all fish there are other fish where individuals do matter a lot but um you know and i would say that those fish are also who animals uh you got to remember there's like 30,000 species of fish they do right. just about everything but you know the including breathing air i mean there are fish that do a lot of different things so you you can't make a much of a blanket statement about fish or, uh, or any of these groups. But that's the distinction I was making, is that for many animals, individuals matter. For many animals, individuals do not matter. So there's the who animals and the it animals in that sense.
0: And so when it comes to the ability for those animals to uh, have intelligence, particularly emotional intelligence and feelings, is that something where you can make a blanket statement that who animals are typically the more intelligent animals that are experiencing those things? And the, yes, it, you,
1: it, you you can make that statement, and in fact, one of the one of the major leading hypotheses for the evolution of intelligence is that intelligence evolves as a social skill. If there's a social need for it, that's when intelligence evolves. But uh, you know, I didn't I didn't sense. write the I didn't write the book. To expound on a lot of scientific uh, theories and speculations, I, you know we can dial that a few clicks back. I, I wrote the book to show people that uh, that on this planet, the only living planet that we know of, there are a lot of creatures besides the ones in our own species
0: mm-hmm.
1: who live a very vivid existence and who value their lives and greatly value the lives of their family members and their friends and that they are having those experiences. Life means something to them. And uh, in some ways it means more to them than it means to us. For instance, of all the shared emotions, some some people say to me, well, do you know any emotions that we have that animals never have? Well, I, I don't know of depression in wild animals at all. I don't know of suicide in wild animals at all. In that sense, they seem to value their lives a lot all the time, whereas a lot of people don't. A lot of people would like to end their lives, and um, and I don't know anything in animals that looks uh, anything like um, uh, self-loathing or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So you know, the only the only the only emotions that I see that are really different in humans that I don't see any parallel of in other animals are, are sort of the really the worst ones that we have. And probably those are symptoms of civilization and, um, and living in, you know, in our very, very crowded, overcomplicated and often very alienating Mm -hmm. um, systems that we've built for ourselves probably don't have those things in small tribal groups either where you know it's a close-knit band of people who all know and and must support one another.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's interesting what you said which I hadn't thought of before is that if you assume intelligence is something that really develops as social structures develop, the new civilization that we've developed particularly in really urban societies, despite the fact that you're surrounded by millions of people, it's really for many people it can be more isolating than anything that we've ever experienced in evolutionary, evolutionarily speaking. And I think for 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 me at least, like I always know that I always find my most happy moments to be when I have a feeling of belongingness to a group and a feeling of purpose within a group to achieve a bigger goal. And I think it's very easy, as you mentioned, to get alienated. And that's why a lot of those darker, in more individualistic emotions or something that you're not seeing elsewhere.
1: Yeah, that's very true. I mean, it's very clear that that the best feeling that we can have is being connected, not alone or separate or isolated, but connected and feeling like we're serving some larger purpose. If, if we feel that way, we're happy. And if we don't feel that way, we're not happy, but we're told all the time to be competitive, to be individualistic, and we and we live in, uh, you know, it, often in these very dense cities that are completely anonymous and mm-hmm. very, very can be ironically can be exceptionally isolating, and can make people feel not only unhappy but if you feel unconnected and you don't have a feeling that you're serving a purpose. You can start to feel existential dread and panic, which many people suffer from.
0: Right. Yeah, and it is it is such an interesting. And then you, I, I I was gonna go down the whole technology aspect of things, but I want to stay on track because I could keep going on that forever. But when you in your book, you you really isolate it to or decided to focus on three distinct groups of animals, elephants, killer whales, and wolves. What was the distinction you made for why you chose those certain animals? And I've always wondered this, and because most of my the podcasts have focused on wildlife photographers who are obviously going out in the field and photographing, and, and uh, is most of your work when you're writing these books, is it in the field or is it like sifting through research papers, et cetera? So when you decided to choose the Yellowstone Wolves, were you out in Yellowstone day by day checking out their interactions, or was it more understanding the scientific literature?
1: Oh, it's a lot of both, but I, I start with the field work usually. and the, what I see in the field sort of is the uh, it becomes the framework for what it is that I want to dig deeper into in the Got published it. work. So, um, you know, there are a lot, there may be lots of things I'm interested in digging deeper into, but if they don't, if they don't cross and intersect with what I've seen in the field, they don't get into the written
0: work. Okay. That makes sense. Can you provide just an overview as to one example for each of those three elephants, killer whales, and wolves as to what is one specific large behavior that you witnessed within those specific species that really were like oh wow you just can't debate whether or not these animals are feeling
1: well elephants live in permanent family groups they they know exceptionally well exactly who they're with all the time exactly like we do they don't make any mistakes like that they um they they act very distressed if for some reason they get separated and can't find who they're supposed to be with like if there's a you know, maybe if they spread out a lot while they're foraging, and a huge windstorm comes up, so that they can't hear each other very well, and somebody loses track of where the family went, they act frightened and they start calling all over the place, and they, uh, you know, they definitely are having separation anxiety from their family. And you can see that they have very deep bonds and they're very devoted to the the group identity and to helping one another if there is any kind of distress. W- wolves. Many people have made a monster out of a thing they call a wolf that doesn't really exist in nature. Wolves in nature are not nasty, snarling, threatening creatures to one another. Within their family, which we call a pack, but it's just a nuclear family, Mm -hmm. they treat each other the way dogs treat us. And since wolves are the only ancestor of domestic dogs, We've just, we we see that transference of their behavior, their loyalty, their identity, their defensiveness, if there's any outside threat. And you can see that within the wolf family, the the rest of the family defers to the parents, the, the two breeding wolves, the way that our dogs look at, look for, and defer to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very enlightening, I thought, and really interesting. The, the killer whales are a bit of a combination. In, in many ways, they're, they live in these groups like elephants that relate to other groups around them. Like elephants know who other groups are, and they can identify the calls, and they, they know hundreds of individuals. They say elephants never forget because that's true. Um, and there, again, is a social intelligence that they have. And killer whales, it's a similar thing. But with killer whales, they also have this sort of um, in-group, out-group bias where certain communities of killer whales, which, are, which consist of many families, very, very strongly, actually completely avoid ever mingling with other communities of killer whales at at the border they're they're like different ethnic groups there's nothing else in nature that is so much like the way that we are with other ethnic groups that we consider these totally strange you know people that we can't understand them and we we would never interact with them the borders are really hardened and killer whales are like that with certain other groups of killer whales. But within the group, they're, they're just like one big tribe that mingle and frolic and mate that, with each other. That's
0: so interesting. And they have different dialects too, right? Between. Yeah. Them.
1: Different. Yes. Different dialects. And, you know, and they, and they also, then they break up into their own family groups again. So they have a very, you know, they have a multi-tiered layering of their, of their social structure. And again, they know exactly who they are. They know exactly where they are all the time, and they and they have huge territories. They can range for hundreds of miles, but um, they don't just wander around the ocean. They 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 go to different certain certain places at certain seasons. They show up very reliably. People have known certain killer whales for forty years, but but at certain times of the years, those whales may be seven hundred miles away, and then the next year in the same month. There they are again.
0: It's crazy. And you told one story in your TED Talk about this killer whale or several instances where killer whales have spotted research boats that they've recognized because they're out there all the time in a particularly heavy fog where the boat is lost and actually guided them to shore. Yes.
1: There are two stories with two different scientists, one in the US and one in Canada, where they were lost in fog and killer whales appeared and and they followed the killer whales and the killer whales took them not only to shore but to their homes their homes along the shore (laughs) it's crazy um so that's very you know from from how we understand the mental abilities of non-humans we would say that that's bizarre but if their mental abilities are actually quite similar to ours and they do have much bigger brains than we do and they are mammals um, then it's not really very strange. We we say, oh, that's that's bizarre and that's crazy, but you know they've had these mental capacities since before there were humans on the planet. So there's nothing bizarre and nothing crazy about it. it our our sense, our our reactions are just symptoms of our total ignorance of who we're here with and what their capabilities are.
0: In don't you think it's strange that these animals that do hunt seals, they, they do have very interesting relationships with other species of whales themselves, that they must have some sense of what's going on with the fact that a lot of the persecution in the ocean is coming from us specifically. Why isn't there an aggression of animals towards humans when they see the destruction that's going on? Like, like you never see an elephant herd surrounding a poacher and like charging them or you don't see uh...
1: Well, a- actually, I mean, in one sense, yes, you don't you don't see them like going out and hunting down people. But um there are a few, very few animals that seem capable of revenge when the moment is right, and elephants are the ones that are most capable of doing that. Really. Um if somebody has done something very bad to an elephant. And this happens most often in, in a captive situation. Mm-hmm. An, an elephant may wait for years until there's an opportunity where that person lets down their guard, turns their back, puts down the tool, and then the elephant may do something as simple as backing into them and crushing them. And and that has happened. Whoa in circuses and zoos more than once.
0: Yeah, but a killer whale's never done anything to a human, right, out in, out in uh, a the A free-living
1: killer whale has never hurt a human being, ever.
0: Oh yeah, I forgot about blackfish. Blackfish got pretty dark. You, you Have you spent any time looking into killer whales in captivity and what that does to them?
1: Um, well, I've seen killer whales in captivity in a few places and I've read a lot about it, yeah. That that whale, that you know, there's sort of in the movie Blackfish. There's sort of two different things going on. One is about the whales and how intelligent they are and how much we've abused them, right. and the other is about how, in captivity, the whales are too dangerous to the trainers. To um, that you know, and that and that. There should not it should not be allowed that we have these shows where trainers are put at risk in that way. And I and I think that that gives um, I think that gives sort of sort of the wrong impression, because although on a factual basis, it is true in captivity, killer whales have um, hurt a very few people, but they have done that. But when you look at what's been done to them, even in captivity, that whale Tilikum,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that that is the subject, you know that that sparked the movie Blackfish by killing that trainer at SeaWorld. That that whale had been unbelievably abused, tortured, and 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 was probably essentially psychotic at times. And if you look closely at what happened in that moment. It appears that the whale and the trainer, the whale missed a cue from the trainer and thought that he did what the trainer was asking. And the trainer did not reward the whale. And the whale basically. Freaked out. Acted out by becoming aggressive. You know, the whale got frustrated. It looked to me like the whale got frustrated and started to become aggressive to the trainer and got carried away. Though the whale though e- even then the whale didn't go on an absolute rampage but you know did get carried away and killed that trainer. Um but but it did it wasn't like a random attack that even with this whale that was so abused and was probably psychotic at times mm-hmm. even in that moment it didn't look to me like a random irrational totally unpredictable thing it looked like a tragic occurrence where the whale missed a cue the trainer did not reinforce the whale thought it deserved to get a fish and got frustrated which in a way makes perfect sense i mean the people do things like that all the time people with post-traumatic stress disorder can have some cue that sets them off and they get violent. Right. Uh, you know, the, the whales, for as many whales uh, as, you know, as many killer whales have, as have hurt people in captivity, which is a small handful, um, they're, they're essentially very trustworthy, although they shouldn't, in my opinion, be in captivity.
0: No, I, I mean, and that none have ever hurt anybody out in the wild. And it's not like they don't have any interaction out there. I'm just shocked after watching Blackfish that people are still going to SeaWorld and that there hasn't been like a pure uprising against that. And that's like, to me, they, there's there's a lot of, to be optimistic about in conservation. There's a lot to be pessimistic about in conservation, even uh, more so at times. And that to me is the most clear, this is completely messed up behavior. It's basically like taking this incredibly sentient being and torturing them for 20 to 30 years, we're showing you this. It's killing people because of it, and people still don't care. Like, it, yeah, it, that,
1: no, that's really true. And it's, um, I, I share your frustration over that. I mean, and it, it's- you know, unfortunately, that's one of the reasons that, um, I mean, the reason I write and the reason I talk about these things is not just because I like to, it's because I think that it's surprising that with, with all that we know, there are still so many people who haven't gotten that memo or just don't care about it. And we, um, you know, I think there's there's still a lot that needs to be communicated on a gut level to people so that they understand and feel it.
0: Yeah, and SeaWorld itself is is based in California, which is a very progressive state. I live here in Los Angeles, couple hours from it. And I think what's so interesting is that society at whole continues to progress within our own species so well to be accepting of anybody regardless of your race, religion, sexual orientation. And I think that's great. Everybody should be allowed to do whatever they want to do as long as they're good people and just be able to be as individualistic as they'd like to be and be accepted for that. And yet we still don't place other species into that acceptance. And I think that's so strange. And, well, and I I'm think it's going to get there. I'm but glad I'm,
1: you think we're making such progress with people because I, I think it's even, I think it's even much stranger how, how difficult it is with human beings, even in the United States. I mean, all the things you were saying about people being accepted, et cetera, that's, that's true in New York and it's true in Southern California. Uh, at least it's truer, but um, I'm not sure we would be thinking along those lines if if we were black, for instance. Um,
0: I think that's or, true, but I think you also have many- to to zoom out and from a sheer standpoint of yes, there's still a lot of racism in this world, and there's still a lot of prejudice in this world. But comparatively to like the 1960s, and then comparatively to that to the 1890s, it's certainly trending in the in a positive direction.
1: Yeah, but it, why why does it need to take centuries? Yeah, you oh, know, it tr- is. <laughs>
0: Trust me, I'm with you on that. But I just th- I th- I mean, my point is that like y- you'd like to think that we're in the best point in human history possible, and things are hopefully getting more accepting. But there's this this disconnect when I hope people eventually care about other species the same way we care about other people. I just think it's, unfortunately, I hope it's not too late when that's that shift starts to happen.
1: Yeah. And I think there probably is more of that caring and more of that understanding of people and and other species than ever before. But boy, the progress is unbelievably slow.
0: Yeah, it definitely is. (laughs) So to that point, when you look at your work and, I mean, even beyond specifically the the book that we've been speaking about, you've done so much work around oceans and oil spills and conservation in general. Where do you feel that the world is at conservation-wise? I know that's a very broad question, but for me, I'm somebody who's heavily invested in uh, the wilds and natural world, and I want to support in any way that I possibly can. But it is sometimes hard not to get lost in the doom and gloom of everything, what keeps you optimistic and, and what do you think are the closest and and most opportune, or I guess the lowest hanging fruit items that people can start to check off to actually start to tackle and, and move things forward in a progressive manner?
1: Well, I uh, think that's a much more complicated kind of topic than your you mean to imply, um, but let me, let me start with the worst part first, and then I'll get over to the best part. Okay. I, I, I'm old enough. You know, I was in college when the big environmental laws were being passed and the, and the, the wilderness act and the endangered species act and the clean water and the clean air act. And everybody seemed to, understand that we didn't want to live in a toxic, polluted, and even overcrowded world. And that was the height of the environmental movement. And it has been declining and unraveling in a lot of ways for the last couple of decades, as the gigantic forces that cause so much damage have figured out a way around most of this, mm-hmm. s- this progress. So all one has to do is look at who is in charge of the EPA and the Interior Department and the, and the Justice Department to understand how much backsliding and unraveling is going on. It's, it's very dispiriting. Um, Some of the, you know, the lack of progress on the climate issues, the recent information about collapses of insect communities throughout North America and Europe and a lot of Asia is unbelievable to me. I mean if if you don't have elephants you can still have a lot of things but if you don't have insects and you don't have pollinators a lot is going to start crashing and yet where are the where is the policy response where are the alarm bells everybody is still obsessed with waging war and you know, and and white supremacy. I mean, those are like really the two things that I hear about the most. Um, So those are the really distressing, depressing things. And those things are really going in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah, we've talked on the podcast a bit about the the windshield effect. Have you heard of this?
1: Yes, certainly. Yeah, and, and for
0: listeners, it's when you think of getting on the highway, going on the interstate when you're a kid and driving, I, you would just hit your entire windshield would always get hit by a bug every minute, just continuously covering up the windshield. And now you could drive for days and never hit one insect. And if there's nothing more telling about what's going on with the insect populations, that's it. Well,
1: the most the most chilling thing in one of the most chilling things I've ever observed in my entire life was something very simple, and that was. Um, you know, we uh, usually in the summertime under all the lights, there's a lot of bugs and moths and stuff. Mm-hmm. And usually there are bats going through the bugs and moths and eating. And I went out to dinner last August right at the height of summer with a, a friend of mine who's a really excellent naturalist. And we just parked the car near the restaurant and we just started to walk to the restaurant and he said to me look at the street light and i looked and there was not one single bug
0: Ugh.
1: in the halo of that light and that if i mean if you want to use the word bizarre that is unprecedented i've never seen anything remotely like that Ugh. yeah so so those are the things that are really honestly very dangerous, and terrifying. On the other hand, that's not what you asked me. You asked me what keeps me optimistic and gives me hope. And what does is that when I was a kid, before the environmental movement really took hold, when when I was in my, you know, when I was an adolescent, and I'm talking about, let's say, right around 1970, we had basically lost peregrine falcons and ospreys to DDT. And you could see where I lived, you could see osprey nests Mm -hmm. that were still in the trees from ospreys maybe 15 years earlier that those ospreys did not exist anymore because they couldn't raise any young. The adults died and the population was erased. There were just none. I didn't see an osprey... uh, well, I was 15 when I saw my first osprey and I didn't see another one until I was 21 years old. And I used to go fishing in the same place every weekend. Um, so, I mean, I was where they were supposed to live. If you go to that place now, that same spot, cause I've done this, you can see 10 ospreys in five minutes because there are like four active nests within a mile of each other. And, um, I've watched things that look to me like an absolutely lost cause and I've watched them really come back in, uh, in 1970, there was an article in the New York times magazine that was titled death comes to the peregrine Falcon. And I was kind of a hawk nut when I was a kid. So to me, I remember that article very, very well because it was like, you know, this exceptional bird that I had only seen one of is gone. And, I, and that's it. Death comes to the peregrine falcon. Yeah. But luckily, there were still a few left. And the problem was DDT. And DDT and, and related chemicals were banned in 1972. In 1975, I started working on a project to reintroduce a few of the captive-raised peregrine falcons. And then they started spreading back out again. And now, now it's decades later, mind you, right? So... We have New York City has the densest nesting population of peregrine falcons known in the world and in the summertime we have ospreys all over the shore around Long Island. A- anywhere you go it's it, if you don't see an osprey uh, you know every hour you you just look you know, up and you'll you're not see looking,
0: one. Yeah. It's like that uh planet Earth 2 had the peregrine falcons in New York City and that was Uh-huh. Badass seeing how those things navigate the urban world. Yeah, but uh, those
1: I- things are really incredible. So, you know, to see things that I thought were totally lost causes come surging back makes me understand that when you think it's a totally lost cause, maybe it's not. But what made the difference is a few people did not give up. They, they kept hammering on what the solution needed to be and it worked. So, yeah, I think I'm sticking with that.
0: Yeah, and and I'm with you on that, too, because I think nature has proven time and time again that it's incredibly resilient and able to bounce back, whether it be when there's an established marine protected area or a certain species gets the time and attention and protection that it needs. I mean, to your point, I grew up on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, and I remember even when I was a kid, seeing an osprey was like uh, one of the more exciting things you could ever do. Uh It was almost impossible. And now... I went out on uh, my brother's boat last summer, and you just see him all the time, just like diving yeah. around and right. uh, hanging out on the ship masts and everything. And it's so exciting. And I mean, the California condor is a great example out here. Uh, I think there were like 15 left in the world. They captured them all, brought them to a, a, I think it was San Diego Zoo, where they did a breeding. Yeah, practice. San Diego Zoo, right. And I was out in Ohio camping last last spring, and I probably saw 20 of them, just kind of through my hiking, well, it's awesome.
1: That's fantastic to hear. Um, I in uh, I think it was 1985, I made a special trip with a couple of friends from New York to a particular spot in Southern California because there were six free California condors left. There wow. were, as you said, about 15 in the zoo, in, in um, the San Diego Zoo, And we said, you know, we don't know if they're going to be able to breed them or put them out, or if they put them out, whether they'll survive. And we know there are six surviving ones and we better go see a California condor because we might never see California condors for the rest of our lives. So we went and we saw two of those six. It was a particular pass that they often came through. And we did, you know, we stayed there for hours with a few people who were watching with spotting scopes and binoculars. Mm -hmm. We did see two of them. Uh, I took one of the worst bird photographs of my life that day, but also (laughs) one of the most important ones, a tiny speck of a condor in the distance with a a very inadequate camera, what I could afford at that time. And uh, anyway, you know, fortunately the people who, really thought that the hope was breeding them in captivity and putting them back out. Luckily they were able to do that and luckily they were right. Um, and at the time there were a lot of people who give up hope. There were some leading environmentalists even who said that they shouldn't catch those last ones. They should let them die out with dignity. That's what some people Ugh. were saying. And I, I was thinking, no, are you <laughs> out of your mind? No, no.
0: I mean, it's the we same to thing do going we on with
1: to bring them back, so. with
0: the um, Sumatran rhino right now. Jeremy Hans, who introduced me to you, has been doing a lot of work, and they're in a similar spot where there's—I think they think there's like 40 of these Sumatran rhinos left, and they just because of how geographically spread out they are, the the chances of them actually getting to a healthy breeding population is almost impossible. But unfortunately, the first uh, attempted. Re- uh, capture to bring them into a breeding facility at the Cincinnati Zoo by WWW, Wow by WWF. Uh, the animal died just from the stress of the actual yeah, capture. I heard about that. Yeah. yeah and, and it created yeah. this whole thing where now everybody is like, oh, well, we don't want to be responsible for killing the last ones. We might as well just hope for the best, which is unlikely to be successful. But thankfully, Uh, I'll write in the show notes if I'm wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure that they just successfully captured one, which is a a good sign of hope. But I always just Mm -hmm. think it's so interesting how you you look at these beautiful, magnificent animals like the California condor, like the Sumatran rhino, and ultimately whether or not they survive or don't survive is in the hands of a handful of few government people who probably – don't really place too much of a priority in thinking about the topic in general. It's such a gift yeah. to the world and it's been bureaucratically assigned to to some random people to decide their the fate of their entire existence is just such a weird concept.
1: Yes, that is a weird concept. Yep.
0: So what does the next five years look like for you? Is there another book coming out? Where are you going to decide to focus your time and energy? What are the biggest conservation topics that you're looking to tackle
1: well i have a book right now that uh, i'm finishing oh that's exciting I, I say that with some hesitation because it's it's already overdue but um i will have it i'll have a draft done in a few weeks and sometime later this year or early next year that will be out um two young adult versions of Beyond Words are coming out. The, oh, that's the book cool. Was edited down for young adults and split in two. And the first of those is coming out April, I think it's April 23rd this year, and then probably around the same time next year, that second one is coming out. Um so I'll kind of have a lot going on with the books. I'm I'm doing an article that should be out soon in the New York Times about generally um, endangered animals and declining wild populations. Um, that will probably be out within a month or two, I think. Um, you never know with news and newspapers because things get bumped and things get delayed. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that's in the works. And I have lots, lots more book files and and lists of books i'd like to write so um i think what's in the cards for me is i'm going to just try to do as much writing as i can do and um unfortunately i'm not going to run out of any material about the need to um try to explain and defend what's happening with the natural
0: world so um, (laughs) How do you decide which topic to take on? I mean, if you have a list of all these different books, what is the most- It's a
1: little bit arbitrary. I, I mean, what I have found in the past is I have lists of books I'd like to do. And then when I look at the list, some of those ideas are not great. Some of them are good. Sometimes combining two or three ideas makes it good. And then something more topical and more timely seems to suggest itself, which makes a lot of what's on the list not as relevant. But um, you know, um, it's it's a very it's not a scientific process by any means deciding what kind of book to write next. Um, and three books that I'm collecting a lot of information in files for, Are very very different from one another, and I I simply will have to pick one as the next one. So, um, whether I'm going to pick the one that's you know like the best one I could have picked, or what will make me and the publisher decide to go one way or another, because I'm sure we'll talk about it, Mm -hmm. is uh, is a little unpredictable.
0: What is the the book that you're finishing about?
1: The book i'm finishing is kind of a follow-on to beyond words beyond words was about the you know the intelligence and emotions of non-human beings and this one is about what they learn socially from one another and um uh what you know what counts as culture for non-humans things that are not totally instinctive that they that they they learn as part of their own tradition.
0: Oh, that's cool. What is the typical lead time to that? So you finish a draft in the next few weeks, is that something where it's six to 12 months out or is it longer than that? Yeah,
1: six to 12 months out, yeah. Okay, cool. It's usually more like nine to 12 months. It takes a ridiculous amount of time after you're done for the book to actually appear because uh, there's editing, there's copy editing, there's several rounds of proofing And there, you know, there's long waits in between those things because those get handed off to other people and there's a cue and takes a long time.
0: If you could find back or if you look back on your career, is there one defining moment when you were out in the field where you were just could kind of get present to the fact that you just get to just be so happy that you enjoy doing the work that you do or understand the importance of the work that you do. Is there one experience that really defines that?
1: Uh, no, there's like 200 experiences <laughs> that define that. I, I think I, I think I appreciate more and more how extraordinary it is to have a life where I've actually been able to watch. I mean, really watch, you know, like for many, many hours as my job, what wild animals do. And I, I've always assumed, you know, lots of people, lots of people see some wild animals and lots of people are very good birders and lots of people go to see what's, uh, what's left of animals in the national parks or, or, get to go on a, on a safari in Africa, or diving on the reefs and things like that. So it never seemed like just doing it full time was that different. But I'm starting to realize that it's very, very different from being on vacation, when you, you know, get to really immerse in observation, in reading, and thinking. Um, And very few people, unfortunately, uh, have had um, the experiences that I've had. So I feel on the one hand, I feel very, very lucky. On the other hand, I I wish I could share it a lot more with everybody. And that's one of the main reasons that I write, because that's the, the best way I can think of to share it with as many people as I can.
0: Yeah. And I think progression in general is really just allowing people to get out there and experience things. I mean, it's the same thing we were talking about racial tensions or completely neglecting entire species of wild animals. I think it's often just when you don't have experiences and fully understanding them, it's easy not to, to treat them properly or give them like the proper understanding.
1: Well, of course. It's like anybody, if you don't if you don't understand who they are, it's not likely that you will treat them the way they need to be treated.
0: So I wanna go real quickly into some recommendations. If you could recommend outside of your own, one book in one documentary that was wildlife slash conservation related, uh, which would those be? Oh geesh. That
1: is, uh, that's a hard question for me to answer.
0: Um, cause you're like, all my books are by far better than everybody else's.
1: <laughs> no, no, not at all. But <laughs> no, I did, it, I'm just joking. Almost, um, you know, the ones that had the biggest impact on me were the ones I read when I was young mm-hmm. and, you know, helped make me want to make a life and a living out of this kind of interest and this kind of work. So they're old. So those books are very old and, um, I'm trying to, I, I'm actually trying to think of fairly recent books about nature or the environment that I think are so killer. And I'm not quite coming up with much. I, I tend to read so much science stuff that um, I don't usually read the book forms.
0: So it makes sense. I listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, particularly around um, with, with like entertainment and comedians and uh, comedy writers and things like that in LA. And they always say like when you're when you're immersed in the work, it's really hard to then take your leisure time and, and watch co- a comedy series or a sitcom or anything like that, just because you almost wanna, you wanna break from it to a certain degree, or you're spending so much time l- reading about scientific literature for your own books that it's just hard to to ever turn that off.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you who I think is, is um, probably the best living writing naturalist is Bernd Heinrich. B. E. R. N. D. Heinrich, he he has really wonderful books about nature that often involve getting to know individual wild animals, and he's a spectacularly incisive observer, and uh, and I've gotten to know him a little bit, and he's he's that way in person as well. So um, I I would say. You know, there's like there's a lot you can read about conservation all over the place. I mean, um uh the the fairly recent book called The Sixth Extinction. Um that's a great Elizabeth book. Col Elizabeth Colbert's book. That that explains a lot. Um uh yeah, I really Diana, that. it's that's a very good book. Diane Ackerman has written some very good stuff. Um those are like they tend to be issue-oriented environmental books or conservation books. But as far as like you know who we are here with, just getting to understand something more about animals and their individual experiences of living, I I, I would say Bern Heinrich is probably the best going.
0: How about documentary?
1: Um. I, hard to beat the BBC. Yeah. Um, that that work is has just gotten to be so superb and really spectacular. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's it's hard to beat planet Earth. Yeah. And then what about uh, for folks listening who want to donate, whether it be to support your work or nonprofits that uh, you really truly believe in their mission? Or is there a short list that... You think are kind of the the creme de la creme of looking into.
1: Um, well, I I uh, this question makes me very uncomfortable because um, a I'm always likely to leave out somebody that I think is really important, mm-hmm. and b um, there are definitely a lot of groups that are very worthy of support that I I don't know about, and I and it's impossible for me to. Mention. I, I like the Center for Biological Diversity. Mm-hmm. I like the Natural Resources Defense Council. I like Save the Elephants. I like a thing called Big Life Foundation. And um, there's um, there's the uh, the Friends of Yellowstone, which I have been. Um, a supporter of since I went there a few years ago, especially. Um, so that's, I would say that that's some of the main ones on my short list. Ambicelli trust mm. is another one that's also elephant related. Um, there's the Lori markers, cheetah group in Namibia. um, was the name of it escapes me now i'm not sure if it's called cheetah conservation there's the um there's the snow leopard conservancy there i mean there's there's really really a lot and i tend to be f- focused kind of at a at a a big zoomed out level on some of those things but there are a lot, a lot of local groups. And I think it's important for people to support what they like to support. You know, if you just like to support small local things, that's great. I'm, I'm not, um, the fact that my list doesn't include small local things doesn't mean I think they're not very important. My, I mean, my group is a small group. It's not, it's not locally focused, but it's a small group. So a lot of the small groups tend to be nimble and very effective with a dollar. Um, so anyway, that's some of my thinking about that.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. And my last question is if you could take out a billboard and plop it on the side of a major highway and put one message on there that disseminates, uh, one message in 10 words or less, what would that be?
1: Uh, don't have more than two kids.
0: Yeah. Why, why is that? Is the overpop- you well, think well, overpopulation is a.
1: By far, every problem in the world is either caused by or made much worse by the fact that there are way, way, way more of us than is good. I mean, you know, human beings are, are nice most of the time, but we are too much of a good thing. Food is nice most of the time, but you can eat too much. And there are twice as many people now as when I was born twice as many. And when I was born, nobody was saying that the main problem with the world is is not enough people. So uh, all the problems that we have are really caused by and driven by the fact that there are so many of us or made worse by that fact. And the biggest effect that we have on the environment is having a kid, you know, and that's something that should not be taken lightly so um it's a very important topic and the other thing is that um if you look at the countries that have stabilizing populations or declining populations those are also the countries where women's issues and women's rights are the most advanced where basically where women are full citizens and can own property and inherit Property and own businesses and go to any level of education that they can get into and can afford. I mean, there's no institutional barrier oh, wow. to them. And um, so, really, the biggest social problem in the world is the relation between men and women because that runs through all races and all countries and all ethnic groups. There's, there's always that problem. And it's a stroke of luck that the one thing that solves that problem best is, which is equal rights for women, also solves the biggest other problem we have, which is seven, eight, ten billion people is not something that the planet can bear. Um, so you know, when when women simply get a choice, they they prefer small families because the biggest secret of rich people is that small families create big lives
0: well carl i'm a huge fan of the work that you do i i think thank, thank be- you that's very
1: kind of you thank no, you no
0: it's true and i think beyond words is something that uh, has always been the strongest message that i've tried to put forth in the work that I do mm-hmm. and I think you summarized it and or uh, put it together in a book in a way that is so powerful and and so important. And if people understood animals and wildlife from that perspective, I think it would really, really change the way that we make a lot of our decisions as a as a species in general. So, Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm super excited for the next book coming out in nine to 12 months. Uh, Mm I hope we can do it again. And uh, for people listening, I'm going to link to all of Carl's, uh, the nonprofit center, all of your personal website, Instagram, social channels, et cetera, in the show notes. So anybody that wants to, and obviously links to the books, uh, anybody that wants to read more and get involved, help support, et cetera, please check out the show notes. And thank you for listening. Until next time, stay wild. Thank you so much for listening. I honestly cannot express how much I appreciate you taking the time. For all information regarding this episode's guest, social channels, books, how you can support, etc., please check out our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast. We are everywhere that you can find podcasts. Subscribe to Escape the Zoo on YouTube, follow Escape the Zoo on Instagram, like Escape the Zoo on Facebook, and please share with your friends. It honestly goes so far and means so much to me. And lastly, if you'd like to be emailed with each new podcast and any other major Escape the Zoo updates, visit escapethezoo.tv and sign up for our email list. Thank you.